Volume 2, Chapter 12 of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume 2, Chapter 12. O oh, love's but a dance, where time plays the fiddle. See the couples advance. O oh, love's but a dance, a whisper, a glance. Shall we twirl down the middle? O oh, love's but a dance, where time plays the fiddle. Austin Dobson. It was the night of the fancy-dress ball. The carriages were already at the door, and could be heard crunching round and round upon the gravel. Sir Henry, all yeomanry red and gold, was having the bursting hooks and eyes at his throat altered in his wife's room. Something had to be done to his belt, too. At last he went, blushing, downstairs before the cluster of maids, with his sword under his arm. The guests, who had gone up to dress after an early dinner, were reappearing by degrees. Lord Hemsworth, in claret-coloured coat and long Georgian waistcoat and tie-wig, came down, some and quiet as usual, with his young sister, whose imagination had stopped short at cotton-wool snowflakes on a tulle skirt. An impecunious young man in a red hunt-coat rushed in, hooted on the stairs by Mr. Lumley for having come without a wedding garment. Madeline sailed down in Watto costume. Two married ladies followed in Elizabethan ones. Presently Archie made his appearance, a dream of beauty in white satin from head to foot, as the Earl of Leicester, his curling hair, fair to whiteness, looking like the wig, which it was not. Everyone, men and women alike, turned to look at him, and Mr. Lumley, following in Harlequin costume, was quite overlooked, until he turned a somersault, saying, "'Here we are again!' whereat Sir Henry instantly lost a hook and eye in a cackle of admiration." "'We ought to be starting,' said Madeline. "'We're all down now.' "'Not quite all,' said Mr. Lumley, sinking on one knee, as Di came in, crowned and sceptred, in a green and silver gown edged with ermine. Lord Hemsworth drew in his breath. Madeline's face fell. "'Good gracious, Di,' she said, with a very thin laugh, "'this is dressing up indeed.' The party, already late, got under way, Mr. Lumley, of course, calling in falsetto to each carriage in turn not to go without him, and then refusing to enter any vehicle in which, as he expressed it, Miss Tempest was not already an ornamental fixture. "'This is getting beyond a joke,' said Lord Hemsworth, as a burst of song issued from the carriage leaving the door, and the lamp inside showed Di's crowned head, Sir Henry's violet complexion, and the gutter-percher face of the warbling Mr. Lumley. Di sat very silent in her corner, and after a time, as the drive was a long one, the desultory conversation dropped, and Sir Henry fell into a nasal slumber, from which, as Madeline was in another carriage, no one attempted to rouse him. Di shut her eyes as a safeguard against being spoken to, and her mind went back to the subject she had been occupying much of her thoughts since the previous evening, namely, the fact that she should meet John at the ball. She knew he would be there, for she had seen him get out of the train at Alvary Station the afternoon before. She had found on a previous occasion, when they had suddenly been confronted with each other at the Doncaster races, to meet John had ceased to be easy to her, became more difficult every time. Possibly John had found it as difficult to speak to Di as she had found it to receive him. But however that may have been, it would certainly have been impossible to divine that he was awaiting the arrival of anyone to-night 
with the faintest degree of interest. He did not take his stand where it would be obvious that he could command a view of the door through which the guests entered. He had seen others do that on previous occasions, and had observed that the effect was not happy. Nevertheless, from the bay window where he was watching the dancing, the guests as they arrived were visible to him. "'Hee-hee!' said Lord Frederick, joining him. "'Such a row in the men's cloak-room! Young Talbot has come as little Bo Peep, and the men would not have him in their room. Said it was improper, and tried to hustle him into the ladies' room. He's still swearing in his ulster in the passage. Why aren't you dancing?' "'I can't. My left arm is weak since I burned it in the spring.' "'Well,' rejoined Lord Frederick, who, as a French marquis with cane and snuff-box, was one of the best-dressed figures in the room, you don't miss much. Onlookers see most of the game. Look at that fairy twirling with the little man in the kilt. Their skirts are just the same length. The worst part of this species of entertainment is that one cuts one's dearest friends. Someone asked me just now whether the mauvais longue was here to-night. Did not recognise the wolf in sheep's clothing. More arrivals. A Turk and a Norwegian peasant and a man in a smock-frock. And now what on earth is the creature in blue and red with a female to match? Otterhounds, suggested John. Is it possible? Never saw it before. There goes Fremantle as a private of the blues, saluting as he's introduced instead of bowing. What a fund of humour the youth of the present day possess. Who is that bleached earwig he's dancing with? I think it is Miss Crupp's, the heiress. Ah, might have known it. That's a sort of little pill that no one takes unless it is very much guilt. Here comes the Verelst party at last. Lady Verelst has put herself together well. I wouldn't mind buying her at my valuation and selling her at her own. She hates me, that little painted saint. I always cultivate a genuine saint. I make a point of it. They may look deuce dowdy down here. They generally do, though I believe it is only their wings under their clothes. But they will probably form the aristocracy up yonder. It is as well to know them beforehand. But Lady Varelse is a sham, and I hate shams. I am sham myself. <laughs> when last I met her she talked pious and implied intimacy with the Almighty, till at last I told her that it was the vulgarest thing in life to be always dragging in your swell acquaintance. <laughs> I shall go and speak to her directly she's done introducing her party. Mrs. Dunderson. I don't know the other woman. Who's the girl in white? "'Miss Everard.' "'What? Hemsworth, sister? "'Then he'll be here, too, probably. Oh, "'I like Hemsworth. "'There's no more harm in that young man "'than there is in a tablet of pear's soap. "'A crowned head next. "'Why, it's Di Tempest. "'By George, she's handsomer every time I see her. "'If that girl knew how to advertise herself, "'she might become a professional beauty.' "'Heaven forbid,' said John involuntarily watching Di with the intense concentration of one who has long pored over memory's dim portrait, and now corrects it by the original. Lord Frederick did not see the look. For once something escaped him. He too was watching Di, who with the remainder of the Verelst party was being drifted towards them by a strong current of fresh arrivals in their wake. The usual general recognition and non-recognition peculiar to fancy balls ensued in which old acquaintances looked blankly at each other, gasped each other's names, and then shook hands effusively, amid which one small greeting between two people who had seen and recognised each other from the first instant took place. 
and was over in a moment. "'I cannot recognise any one,' said Di. Her head held a shade higher than usual, looking round the room and saying to herself, "'He would not have spoken to me if he could have helped it.' "'Some of the people are unrecognisable,' said John, with originality equal to hers, and stung by the conviction that she had tried to avoid shaking hands with him. The music struck up suddenly, as if it were a new idea. "'Are you engaged for this dance?' said Mr. Lumley, flying to her side. Uh, "'Yes,' said Di, with decision. "'So am I,' said he, and was gone again. "'Dance!' said a sporting times, rushing up in turn, and shooting out the one word like a pea from a pop-gun. "'Thanks, I should like to, but I'm not allowed,' said Di. "'My grandmother is very particular. If you'd been the Sunday at home, I should have been charmed.' The Pinkun expostulated vehemently, and said he would have come as the church times if he'd only known. But Di remained firm. John walked away, pricking himself with his little dagger, the sheath of which had somehow got lost, and watched the knot of men who gradually gathered round Di. Presently she moved away with Lord Frederick in the direction of Madeline, who had installed herself at the further end of the room among the fenders, as our latter-day youth gracefully designates the tiaras of the chaperones. John was seized upon and introduced to an elderly minister with an order, who told him he had known his father, and began to sound him as to his political views. John, who was inured to this form of address, answered somewhat vaguely, for at that moment Di began to dance. She had a partner worthy of her in the shape of a sedate young Russian, resplendent in the white and gold uniform of the imperial garde à cheval. Lord Frederick gravitated back to John. No young man among the former's large acquaintance was given the benefit of his experience more liberally than John. Lord Frederick took an interest in him which was neither returned nor repelled. "'Elva is down at last,' he said. "'It seems he had to wait till his mother's maid could be spared to sew him into his clothes. "'It's a pity you're not dancing, John. "'You might dance with your cousin. "'She and Prince Blazinski make a splendid couple. "'What a crowd of moths round that candle! "'Maybe you're not one of them. "'It's not the candle that gets singed. Ah, "'Another set of arrivals. "'Look at Carruthers coming in with a bouquet.' Cox of the monarch still, I suppose. He can't dance with it. No, he's given it to his father to hold. Supper at last. I must go and take someone in. John took Miss Everard in to supper. In spite of her brother's and Di's efforts, she had not danced much. She did not find him so formidable as she expected, and before supper was over had told him all about her doves, and how the grey one sat on her shoulder and how she loved poetry better than anything in the world except Donovan. John proved a sympathetic listener. He, in his turn, confided to her his difficulty in conveying soup over the edge of his ruff, and, after providing her with a pink cream, judging with intuition unusual to his sex that a pink cream is ever more acceptable to young ladyhood than a white one, he took her back to the ballroom. The crowd had thinned. The kilt and the fairy and a few other couples were careering wildly in open space. John looked round in vain for Madeline, to whom he could deliver up his snowflake, and, catching sight of Mrs. Dundas on the chaperone's dais, made in her direction. Di, who was sitting with Mrs. Dundas, suddenly perceived them coming up the room together. What was it? 
What could it be, that indescribable feeling that went through her like a knife, as she saw Miss Everard on John's arm, smiling at something he was saying to her? Had they been at supper together all this long time? "'What a striking face your cousin has,' said Mrs. Dundas. "'I do not wonder that people ask who he is. I used to think him rather alarming, but Miss Everard does not seem to find him so.' "'He can be alarming,' said Di lightly. You see him when he is discussing his country's wheel, or welcoming his guests. "'Why did I say that?' she asked herself the moment the words were out of her mouth. "'It's ill-natured, and not it true. Why did I say it?' Mrs. Dundas laughed. "'It's the old story,' she said. "'One never sees the virtues of one's relations. Now, as he is not my first cousin, I am able to perceive that he is a very remarkable person with a jaw that means business.' There is tenacity and strength of purpose in his face. He would be a terrible person to oppose. Di laughed, but she quailed inwardly. "'I am told he is immensely run after,' continued Mrs. Dundas. "'I dare say you know,' in a whisper, "'that the Duchess wants him for Lady Alice, and they say he has given her encouragement, but I don't believe it. Anyhow, her mother is making her read up political economy in Bain, poor girl.' must be an appalling fate to marry a great intellect. I'm thankful to say Charlie only had two ideas in his head. One was chemical manures, and the other was to marry me. "'Well, Miss Everard, Lady Verrell is at supper, but I will extend a wing over you till she returns. Here comes a crowd from the supper-room. Now, Miss Tempest, do go in. You owned you were hungry a minute ago, though you refused the tragic entreaties of the Turk and the stage villain.' I was afraid, said Di, for though the villain is my esteemed friend in private life, I know his wide hat, or the turban of the infidel, would catch in my crown and drag it from my head. I wish I had not come so regally. I enjoyed sewing penny rubies into my crown, and making the ermine out of an old black muff and some rabbit fur. But uneasy is the head that wears a crown. I am very harmless and inaggressive, said John, in his most level voice. The only person I prick with my little dagger is myself. If you are hungry, I think you may safely go in to supper with me. Very well, said Di, rising and taking his offered arm. I am too famished to refuse. She is taller than he is, said Miss Everard, as they went together down the rapidly filling room. No, my dear, it is only her crown. They are exactly the same height. No one is more useful in everyday life than the man, seldom a rich man, who can command two sixpences, and can in an emergency produce a threepenny bit and some coppers. The capitalist with his half-crown is nowhere, for the time. In conversation, small change is everything. Who does not know the look of the clever man in society, conscious of a large banking account, but uncomfortably conscious also that, like Goldsmith, he has not a sixpence of ready money. And who has not envied the fool, jingling his few halfpence on a tombstone, or anywhere, to the satisfaction of himself and everyone else? Thrice blessed is small talk. But between some persons it is an impossibility, though each may have a very respectable stock of his own. Like different coinages, they will not amalgamate. Di and John have not wanted any in talking to each other, till now. And now, in their hour of need, 
to the alarm of both, they found they were destitute. After a short mental struggle they succumbed into the abyss of the commonplace, the only neutral ground on which those who have once been open and sincere with each other can still meet, to the certain exasperation of both. John was dutifully attentive. He procured a fresh bottle of champagne for her, and an unnibbled roll, and made suitable remarks at intervals. But her sense of irritation increased. Something in his manner annoyed her. And yet it was only the same courteous, rather expressionless manner that she remembered was habitual to him towards others. Now that it was gone, she realized that there had once been a subtle difference in his voice and bearing to herself. She felt defrauded of she knew not what, and the wing of cold pheasant before her loomed larger and larger, till it seemed to stretch over the whole plate. Why on earth had she said she was hungry? And why had he brought her to the large table there was so much light and noise and where she was elbowed by an enormous hairy buffalo bill, when she had seen as she came in that one of the little tables for two was at that instant vacant? She forgot that when she first caught sight of it she had said within herself that she would never forgive him if he had the bad taste to entrap her into a tete-a-tete by taking her there. But he had shown at once that he had no such intention. Was this dignified, formal man, with his air of distinction and his harsh, immobile face and his black velvet dress, was this stranger really the John with whom she had been on such easy terms six weeks ago, the John who, pale and determined, had measured swords with her in the dusk of a September evening? And as she sat beside him in the brilliant light, amid the babel of tongues, a voice in her heart said suddenly, That was not the end. That was only the beginning. Only the beginning. Her eyes met his, fixed inquiringly upon hers. He was only offering her some grapes, but it appeared to her that he must have heard the words, and a sense of impotent terror seized her, as the terror of one who, wrestling for his life, finds at the first throw that he is overmatched. She rose hastily, and asked to go back to the ballroom. He complied at once, but did not speak. They went, a grave and silent couple, through the hall and down the gallery. "'Have I annoyed you?' he said at last, as they neared the ballroom. She did not answer. "'I mean, have I done anything more that has annoyed you?' "'Nothing more, thanks.' "'I'm glad,' said John. "'I feared I had. Of course, I would not have asked you to go in to supper with me if Mrs. Duntas had not obliged me. I intended to ask you to do so.' when you could have made some excuse for refusing if you did not wish it. I was sorry to force your hand. "'You will never do that,' said Di, to her own astonishment. It seemed to her that she was constrained by a power stronger than herself to defy him. She felt him start. "'We will take another turn,' he said instantly. And before she had the presence of mind to resist, they turned and were walking slowly down the gallery again, between the rows of life-size figures of knights and chargers in armour, which loomed gigantic in the feeble light. A wave of music broke in the distance, and the few couples sitting in recesses rose and passed them on their way back to the ballroom, leaving the gallery deserted. A peering moon had laid a faint criss-cross whiteness on the floor. The place took a new significance. Each was at first too acutely conscious of being alone with the other to speak. 
She wondered if he could feel how her hand trembled on his arm, and he, whether it was possible, she did not hear the loud hammering of his heart. Either would have died rather than have betrayed their emotion to the other. "'You tell me I shall never force your hand,' he repeated slowly at last. "'No, indeed, I trust I never shall. But when, may I ask, have I shown any intention of doing so?' Dyer put herself so palpably and irretrievably in the wrong that she had no refuge left but silence. She was horror-struck by his repetition of the words which her lips, but surely not she herself, had spoken. "'If you ever marry me,' said John, "'it will be of your own accord. If you don't, we shall both miss happiness, you as well as I, for we are meant for each other.' Most people are so constituted that they can marry whom they please. But you and I have no choice. We have a claim upon each other. I recognize yours with thankfulness. I did not know life held anything so good. You ignore mine and willfully turn away from it. I don't wonder. I am not a man whom any woman would choose, much less you. It is natural on your part to dislike me, at first. In the meanwhile, you need not distress yourself by telling me so. I am under no delusion on that point. His voice was firm and gentle. If it had been cold, Di's pride would have flamed up in a moment. As it was, its gentleness, under great and undeserved provocation, made her writhe with shame. She spoke impulsively. But I am distressed. I can't help being so having spoken so harshly, no, worse than harshly, so unpardonably. "'There is no question of pardon between you and me,' said John, turning to look at her with a grave smile that seemed for a moment to bring back her old friend to her, but only for a moment. His eyes contradicted it. "'I know you have never forgiven me for telling you that I loved you. But nevertheless you see I have not asked pardon yet.' though I had not intended to annoy you by speaking of it again, at present. No, said Di eagerly, but that is just it. it. It was my own fault this time. I brought it on myself. But but I can't help knowing. I, I feel directly I see you that you are still thinking of it, and then I become angry and say dreadful things like— Exactly, said John, nodding. Because I—not only because I am ill-tempered, but because though I do like being liked— Still, I don't want you or anyone to make a mistake, or, or go on making it. it. It doesn't seem fair. Not if it really is a mistake. It is in this instance. Not on my part. There was a short silence. Di felt as if she had walked up against a stone wall. John, she said with decision, believe me, I sometimes mean what I say, and I mean it now. I really and truly... I'm a person who knows my own mind. So do I, said John. Rather a longer silence. And, and, oh, John, don't you see how wretched, how foolish it is, our being on these absurd, formal terms? Have you forgotten what friends we used to be? I, I've not. It makes me angry still when I think how you've taken yourself away for nothing, and how all the pleasure is gone out of meeting you or talking to you. I don't think you half knew how much I liked you. Die, said John, stopping short and facing her with indignation in his eyes. 
I desire that you will never again tell me you like me. I really cannot stand it. Let us go back to the ballroom. End of Volume 2 Chapter 12